Hello and welcome back to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast where we break down the health tech news every single week. This week we are not joined by producer Adama so if our quality does plummet significantly you know why. We are excited to have Adama back with us next week. She's doing something way more fun. I heard it involves Joe Wicks so we'll find (laughs) out more about that another time. My name is Jessica Smith. I am co-founder here at Somex and executive editor at Health Tech Pigeon, as well as one of many co-hosts of this podcast, along with my colleague, Hugh Penton, who is our wonderful, glorious editor of Health Tech Pigeon and health tech comms specialist extraordinaire. Um, so I'm delighted to have you with me today, Hugh. Hi, how are you? How's your week been? Hi, Jessica. I'm good. I'm good. I'm going in for the the big plug of us today, uh, from the sounds of it. Yeah, it's been a it's been a busy week, but we're looking forward to the. I think it's the first. It's not the first nine day fortnight of the year, is it? It's the second. Um, but yeah, looking forward to uh, a three day weekend. How about yourself? Lovely. Yeah. Also a busy week. I've been thinking a lot about events this week. Not least because obviously we are hosting our health set podcast live. Which if you haven't got your ticket. Go and get it. I'm not going to repeat the discount code as I did last week. Um, I really degraded myself there, but it's in the show notes, so go find it. But I think February is shaping up to be busy on the events front. There's some very cool things going on, not least the Helltech X Summit at Het North. Very exciting. You're going to that one, aren't you, Hugh? There might be a special Uh episode from there. Uh, What else is going on? Best Practice Live. Lots. Lots in the pipeline. And actually, March and April are looking just as busy too. Um, we're actually making plans for a one of the events that's coming up, I won't tell you which, to do a pre-event breakfast meetup, coffee and walk along the canal. So that will be fun. Keep your ears and eyes out for more information about that one. So yeah, I'm looking forward to all of those things. But it feels like January as the trope goes, was 75 years long. And now all of a sudden we're in February and it's only the 1st of February today as we record this, but tomorrow feels like it's going to be March. I think February is going to fly by. And I think that broadly is going to be because everything seems to be a lot busier, which is always good fun. So anyway, without further ado, I'm going to quit the rambling and let's jump into our first story. All right, our first story comes to us today from UKTN, UK Tech News, Tech News, for those of you who are not as well acquainted. And it is about 3D printed tumours. Now, a company in Edinburgh has raised £4.2 million in this endeavour to develop its 3D printed micro tumour technology. Now, why might you ask, are they printing tumours? When I first saw this headline, I actually envisaged like a plastic printed model of a tumour. It's not that. It isn't that. It is using stem cells to replicate tumours that patients with cancer have to then test treatments on them to identify what the best treatment will be in order to get the best outcome, which is very exciting and very cool. And a little bit, I want to say black mirror, but in a positive way. 
positive, <laughs> positive way. And I think it's super interesting. There's not loads of information here, to be honest. And it sounds like, you know, they're not super advanced in their journey. Um, and I believe that, well, they're very much still in the testing phases. I don't think it's reached um, actual implementation yet. However, I have noticed a trend of companies like this who are looking increasingly at ways to, I guess, optimize treatment outcomes and understand the best treatments for individuals without going down the road of animal testing or minimizing the amount of animal testing that's required. And for instance, Okabio, they have an entire liver ITU where they are testing different therapeutics on live human livers that have been um, reconditioned. So they were diseased livers and they've been reconditioned. And that is helping to skip that animal testing step. And there's a recent FDA FDA announcement that said that the animal testing is no longer a critical step in, in clinical development. So I think that opens up lots of opportunities for technology to find new ways for us to be able to do more precision testing on all sorts of different uh, elements of health and disease, knowing that actually in animal testing, whilst it can provide useful indicators, it actually doesn't accurately represent the outcomes that we may see in humans and actually being able to use different technologies through algorithms and by modeling tumors like this, or, you know, even on real life human organs, uh, actually gets us closer to much more precise results far more quickly. So I think it's, it's pretty cool. And um, yeah, as I said, definitely not a cute little plastic 3D model of a tumor that sits on your desk, as I had initially thought. Hugh, how excited about this one are you? I'm very excited about this one, actually. I think, as you say, there's both scientific and moral reasons to sort of move move towards these, I you know, hypothetically more accurate ways of uh, testing drugs and testing treatments. And I think, um, yeah, as you say, when reading um, about three D printed tumors, you really do imagine something quite different. And uh, this this is fairly impressive. I've had a look at the background of the company, as you say, quite. Uh, Seems to be quite early stage. This is their Series A, four point two million off the back of a one a one point something million raise back in twenty twenty two, and and this this will be apparently supporting their US expansion. Although quite exciting thing that this is actually the first deal for the British business bank backed IFS. So hopefully a UK success story off the back of it as well. But uh, yeah, I think. Um, I think this is definitely a company to watch and I'd love to find out more, particularly just as we kind of get sense of sort of how how effective these 3D printed tumours are at sort of, um, I guess, dealing with some of the challenges we found, found with animal testing, um, the, the replicability, the the accuracy um, of, you know, the, the testing drug responses and, and humans' responses to the drugs as well. So, yeah, absolutely, we'll be watching this one. Nice. I also just realised that, although I said it at the beginning, they are Edinburgh-based, so I think we're going to have to send 
Bell out on a mission to go and see this technology <laughs> in practice. For anyone who doesn't know who Bell is, Bell is one of our wonderful colleagues who is based up in Edinburgh uh, and is always on the lookout for fun health tech and biotech. So, yeah, we'll send her on a mission and report back, see if we can get an insider tour. That would be very, very fun. All right. Well, on to our next story. And funnily enough, it's about tumours as well. This one is also very exciting and links in really, really nicely with some of the conversations we've been having about wearables. So the new scientist has reported about a new wearable device that monitors tumour size and then reports it to an app that is viewable on your smartphone. Uh, So basically, a group of academics in Taiwan have developed this device that is essentially like a sticker that sticks on skin that can then report directly to your smartphone, which is very, very cool. Now, there's not a lot of information in this article. It's very short, but I thought it was, yeah, just very different to all the different ways we've been talking about using wearables recently. Again, sounds like it's in the very, very early stages of research and on its journey. And it's it's so far only been tested in mice, Um, but has been found that it can accurately track the development of tumours that are roughly the size of a grain of rice over the course of seven days. It doesn't also say which cancers. It just talks about certain cancers. Um, So I'd be interested. I Obviously, I would assume that it's relative to skin cancers, perhaps, but... I think it's another awesome way for someone who is sick, and we talk about how wearables can be used by people who are optimizing our health, but for someone who is sick, you know, with cancer, where they can be more informed of what is going on in their body, how their condition is, I guess, changing over the course of days, weeks, months. There's probably something quite reassuring about being able to track the development of a tumor in real time that sounds really scary i think i don't know whether i'm in the minority there but i think yeah having access to kind of seeing that um without having to wait uh, till you know certain points and certain consultations to find out what's going on inside my body and how my disease is progressing i would find definitely very helpful and reassuring in some ways kind of appreciate that you know it for some people that would need counseling to go alongside it because that could be quite anxiety inducing but i think we talk about empowering patients we talk about you know putting them in charge of their own care and educating them and helping them to understand what's going on and i think that knowledge is power um and particularly for something like cancer which is a big scary word we know that one in two people are diagnosed with cancer. Uh, We know that lots of cancers are really treatable, but also lots are not. And I think that by being able to have information about these kinds of conditions and how bodies are responding to treatment can be an incredibly empowering experience for people who are going through that journey as well. So it's, uh, as I say, very early in its development stages, but it'll be exciting to see whether or not this actually hits the mainstream. And I imagine that actually there'll be other wearables like this that are almost not noticeable that will in probably 10 years time, maybe five years, if we can get them integrated into health systems quick enough, there'll be more of these sort of almost 
unnoticeable wearables that can be used for that kind of remote real-time tracking of conditions. So I think it's quite cool. Hugh, is this a wearable that you think you would use? Uh, I, I I have questions about whether I personally want to know the information up front. I, I mean, this taps into sort of two kind of developments across the board that, that um, for me that's been happening over the last couple of years. One is that sort of um, should patients be able to access um, results from scans uh, through the NHS app that was one of the initiatives proposed last year um, that we met, that we would all have the access to the NHS app and we'd be able to receive the scans just as our doctors did. And I think a lot of that was that was challenged with that idea that the doctor uh, that without having the doctor there to explain the results to it, it, it might drive anxiety. It might um, create worry. You, you might not sure, be sure how to process, and your your mind will naturally fear the worst, etc. So I feel on the, on the terms of sort of cat what you know, how it impacts the patient. I, I, I do sort of worry that um, were it sort of a direct-to-patient metric, then I think there would be... Uh, I, I have my doubts. <laughs> That's what I said. I do think it also taps nicely into the kind of virtual ward stories that are going on though at the moment. And the last year and the kind of development of virtual wards tech and the expansion and reliance on virtual wards tech for uh, particularly in the NHS. I mean, uh, as we were talking about quite a lot before Christmas, um, and we're seeing uh, virtual wards rolled out to expand uh, treatment and care for various uh, conditions. Uh, NICE are regularly approving um, virtual wards for supporting and, and caring for patients with um, a range of conditions from, I, I'm not going to name any off the top of my head, but I think this is where this for me could have a really potentially big impact. Having that ability to have that real-time tracking, have that real-time understanding of um, the development of cancer, the development of tumours, whether tumours are growing, whether they're staying the same, I think could help. Um, I, I think could help uh, oncologists, cancer doctors really prioritise their time, really prioritise how they treat patients, provide some uh, really strong reassurance, but also g- give that kind of real-time data that can help, that really is the difference between a patient coming in and being told, the worst or the bad news or just being able to be told you know you don't have to come in we're tracking it it all looks good nothing's changed stay where you are yes so on the one hand i think there's a there's a great opportunity for improving using devices like this to improve the accessibility of cancer care and you know making sure that we're not um demanding patients travel to and come to appointments when they when they maybe don't need to and on the other, I think there's a opportunity for us to be a bit more efficient with the way we use workforce time, particularly given the, some of the uh, size of waiting lists for referrals for appointments when it comes to cancer treatment as well. So I think absolutely this is, uh, I think this is quite an exciting development. Um, obviously, we're a long way off and from the article, it really does seem to be very early stage, but uh, it will be, it'll be uh, exciting to see where it goes next. I'll be honest, uh, you have definitely changed my mind i think you're as i sit here reflecting whilst in my mind it would be great to have the control over seeing maybe how a tumor is progressing my body in reality i think maybe seeing that would not be for the best so you've definitely talked me out of that one but you're right i think in terms of supporting patients to be able to stay at home longer um and for clinicians to have access to that data especially you know 
most clinicians will only see tumours at a certain point in time, but actually that continual tracking over the course of days, weeks, months, I think it could provide so many important insights into perhaps how to approach treatment um, and indications about, you know, response, potential response, for example, and all of those kinds of things, you know, outcomes and yeah, so so many different things. So I think that maybe that information might be better in the hands of doctors rather than patients. And I'm getting really ahead of myself there and thinking that I could just really handle that information. I could, I could not. Um, but you raise a really interesting point about virtual wards. And that is another story that we have covered this week. So perfect segue. And why don't you tell us about it? Because this one sounds a little bit contentious. So new studies out that uh, says... Virtual wards cost twice that of inpatient care. It's a it's a paper produced in partnership with Lancaster University, um, and that took place at Wrightington, Wigan, and Lee Teaching Hospitals in Greater Manchester. And it found uh, overall that while virtual wards have some super positive benefits, um, there is actually a greater cost, um, both in terms just largely in terms of higher rates of readmission. So the authors said this led to additional costs. The cost of a bed day in the virtual ward estimated at £935 compared to £536 in a general inpatient hospital bed. study involved 318 virtual ward patients with a wide range of conditions over the course of 2022. The reaction, I guess, has been quite mixed. A lot of very well-respected players, some with agendas, some without, have come and said that you know it, it doesn't reflect the value that this provides to patients. It doesn't necessarily reflect, uh, it, you know, it's only one example. It's it's not, um, it can't be conclusive. That said, the, the those who put it together and um, journalists in the HSJ who, who first reported the article say that, you know, it is the largest study of its kind. It is the longest study of its kind. And it's sort of surprising to see some of the uh, results be dismissed so easily. Um, I mean, I personally, I, I think... I think there's obviously a lot of balance to here. This is this is one study. Whether or not it, it costs more, whether or not it it, it costs the same, uh, it would be great to see these uh, results replicated over an even longer period, uh, over you know reflecting different demographic factors, different diseases. Could we see it uh, um, replicate a similar study replicated in a different area as well? So I think it would be valuable to have more research on this, and I think virtual wards, it's still new technology, it's still uh, a new process, it's still something new for hospitals to get used to. And the, the benefits are also something that we should look at, you know, we do need to weigh cost with um, patient uh, patient benefit, benefits to recovery, benefits to elsewhere. So I think there's a lot, a lot more work we can do before we'll actually get a conclusive um, answer. But it's, 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 it's definitely a valuable contribution on this, and I think um, results we should have and keep in our head um, for the foreseeable. Jessica, what do you think? I have questions, and in part those questions are because I have read the article. Um, disclaimer, it is behind a paywall. Um, so I'm going to basically interrogate Hugh now for all of our readers so that he can <laughs> give us all of the detail uh, without us having to pay for the subscription, sorry to the HSJ, um, but it's an important story. We've got to talk about it. Um, first and foremost, I would to play devil's advocate at a time where the NHS is in crisis, where there's no money, and 
we're short staffed how much of a priority is the value to the patient and i know that it is a priority in the grand scheme of things but really acutely how much does that matter when you're trying to save time and money it would be my question and so i can understand why this would come across as quite so damning my other question is about how they have um defined virtual wards and is this one particular type of technologies is it a series of different technologies is it different providers because i think part of the difficulty with really ascertaining the benefit of a virtual ward is we've not been that successful in defining exactly what they are lots of different hospitals trusts healthcare organizations run them in very different ways with varying degrees of success um and I would be interested to know how that's been categorised. Hugh, for those of us who don't have the subscription, can you advise? I cannot advise on any of those things, unfortunately. Um, I, I think there's the article doesn't go into a huge amount of detail, so I think we're going to have to dig down and find that study for a bit more details in terms of the technologies that are being used, um, what's being taken into account um, when coming up with these costs as well. Um, in terms of value to the patient versus cost. I mean, I think I think a lot of this is a balance for individual trusts, isn't it? To sort of understand and manage um what uh, what they see as value. Um although the you know the, the, as you say, uh when we're fa- when we're facing quite a lot of budgetary pressures, patient benefit versus cost is going to be a uh, it, it's it's going to be a, an easier decision to make. Oh, that's very disappointing. I was really hoping to get the the DL on exactly what was going on there. But you're right, we should definitely try and find the the paper and and understand that because I do think it's important and, and pertinent to the discussion and the debate. And I think it was wrong to write off um, these kinds of studies, it's a, as you said, the longest, the biggest. Um, and I think that people so badly often want technology to work and to be the answer that it's very easy to write off data or conclusions that indicate otherwise. And I, I also think coming back to like how a virtu- however what virtual world has been defined, what technologies have been used... I'm like making some real assumptions here, but I could imagine that, you know, if if it was looking at a, like one particular provider or, you know, a a small number of providers with consistent consistent technology, perhaps that can be pro- compared as, you know, like for like almost that might maybe provide clearer insights about how cost effective it it might be. Um, I also wonder whether with a more defined approach to virtual wards and more consistency over what we think it should look like, that provides better scalability and therefore better cost benefit. And so I wonder whether because there hasn't it's not being used at scale, there's it's still relatively small scale. Those cost efficiencies aren't being able to be realised yet. Again, I don't know. I'm making assumptions based on, you know, data that I've not seen. But 
it, it's a tricky one and I think it, it for some people it will be really disheartening because as I say it's quite damning it's it's not putting virtual wards in a positive light and it's something that innovators and health care organizations have been striving for for a long time like even from you know the early days I remember of talking about um, health tech and digital health it's it's been on the agenda and been something that um, has has been an aspiration and I think that lots of people might feel that seeing conclusions and insights like this might be pushing us a step further away from truly in creating a approach to healthcare that has technology integrated through it we know that integration is you know and scale is a a huge challenge but I jumped in on uh, well actually I gay crashed James's podcast uh, last week when he was away I did throwback episode with the CEO of Exploro and James and Dom were talking about a hospital that had been uh, built in I believe in the Netherlands and it was it sounded just like this incredible hospital of the future that had been built with technology in mind. And I think that's the vision and the hope that we all have for technology, uh, for healthcare of the future. And so seeing evidence like this, I think, is going to make people feel more risk averse when they're considering whether or not to integrate these technologies. And I think quite disheartened when you know, this vision that we're trying to reach, if it makes it feel even further away, um, it kind of feels like a disincentive almost. Um, and I think at a time where budgets are super stretched um, and selling into the NHS is super hard, I think it's going to actually make those conversations even harder and probably create greater scepticism with procurement, with commissioning. Um, so, it's important that we're honest and transparent and we do have data that we can reference and learn from. It is unfortunate when it isn't telling us the good news story that we so desperately want to hear. Um, I don't have an easy solution to that, but you know, we have to be honest about where things are working and aren't working. And I think we also know that where technology is concerned, that the the payback and the payoff is, is a long-term game, not a short-term win. Um, and so maybe there is something about that that we just didn't wait long enough. Even if it is the longest study we've had so far, maybe we need to wait a bit longer. I don't know. As I said, lots of assumptions there, but I can understand why people might feel frustrated and want to therefore maybe push this one to the side. So our next story is actually a few stories at the moment, which is centering around the use of what's essentially consumer messaging apps uh, by clinicians at incredible scale in healthcare and what will happen when they can no longer actually use WhatsApp as a um, tool for speaking to one another. Uh, The first first of these stories comes to us from the BNJ. Uh, What will happen if doctors can no longer use WhatsApp? Essentially discussing... What if um, the Online Safety Act and changes to the Investigatory Powers Act disqualify the the use of um, WhatsApp in the UK or WhatsApp withdraws um, from the UK market, robbing uh, clinicians of a key tool that, let's face it, a lot of them currently rely on? More Even more recently, um, the GMC have issued guidelines on 
the sharing of patient data via WhatsApp. It, it, it shouldn't be done. And if it is done, it should be treated with a lot of care and a lot of attention and ideally avoided wherever possible. So there is the, a discussion going on, which is, should we be using WhatsApp in the first place, essentially? Um, uh, for Just especially for this section, we're really pleased to be joined by Rosanna Jagger, who's the CEO of DotComs, a clinical communications uh, solution. Uh, and I mean, we've been discussing this quite a lot offline, haven't we, Rosanna, just about... Um, is WhatsApp suitable for use in healthcare? What if if a doctor's access to WhatsApp is removed? What's going to happen? Is is this going to be a sort of zero day where um, people where clinicians can no longer communicate given the scale that it's currently used? I mean, I think it's a really good question. The problem is that WhatsApp, as we all know, all of us use it, whether you use it socially, whether you use it for work, it's a really useful tool. It's free to access. Most people you know will be using WhatsApp and you know you're going to get a response. And those little ticks have become synonymous with, you know, de-risking anything that you send. You know when somebody's received it, you can generally work out when somebody's even read a message and that becomes incredibly useful. And I think what we have to remember is that where the medical community has adopted the use of WhatsApp and are trying to use it, they're primarily doing it to affect change or improve patient care. So it's not that I think anybody's using it to try and be irresponsible. I think they're normally using it because there's a gap and they can't get a message through that quickly or that easily if they were to rely on other services. And when I say other services, we're talking about email or trying to get hold of somebody face to face or even just waiting by a desk to take a phone call, which, you know, in medicine worlds, you're going to waste time doing that. So I think you know, if, if we ask the question, if you took WhatsApp away without a viable replacement, we are going to see um, patients suffer or potentially doctors have to work even harder to get the information across and share that data, which is so important for treatment and to progress things quickly. So I think, you know, WhatsApp has filled a void where there just hasn't been anything that suitable or that capable of getting a message across that quickly in the past. What we're seeing now, um, and certainly the work we've been doing now focuses on trying to give doctors, nurses, midwives, physios the ability to still use their mobile phone, but assure, ensure that data is encrypted, it's sent safely, it's sent securely. And for the, for the first time ever, that conversation can be recorded and held in medical records. And that's, that's a huge change. It means, you know, we're going to be ensuring we keep in line with GDPR requirements. Um, NHS data compliance procedures will be adhered with. You know, we're protecting patient safety. We're protecting confidentiality. Images won't be shared um, through mobile phones and they won't appear on personal libraries. You'll be able to protect your work-life balance for once and say, no, I'm not in the hospital. You know, I, I don't need to be bothered with this. And it will allow other people to seek another form of um, advice or certainly a referral process if that's what you're dealing with. So there's so many advantages to not using WhatsApp, but that's only when a viable alternative is there and is in place because just taking WhatsApp away doesn't solve a problem. In fact, it would probably just create some for the people on the ground working their hardest. Completely. Uh, I mean, there's a, I guess communicating for clinicians, it's sort of, it's about scale really as well, isn't it? It's, um, yeah, we're, I think WhatsApp isn't just a convenient option. It's probably the one that they that people know that their colleagues are on, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, we've got to remember that where where it's being used in a medical setting, it's not just people being lazy. It's because they know they'll get a response. And it's the quickest um, way to get the information shared, the quickest way to get a response from people. It's the quickest way to move treatment forward or ensure that patient details can be transferred and the information for that decision maker is there in their hands. Um, and certainly for people working on call, it provides a valuable link between them and others who are transferring patients between different wards or that just need advice. So there's, there's a lot of advantages. There are significant risks that can be now be avoided. Yeah, thank you for that, Rosanna. I, I think it's, it's going to be a challenging one, really, isn't it? Because um, people, so many, so many clinicians and medical professionals are relying on it, but there's clearly a, there's clearly a kind of mix of personal professional. How do we, how do we um, get institutions to start thinking about it? Because a lot of people would say, you know, it's up to my institution to provide me um, the right tool for the job, the right tool for clinicians, and nothing, nothing is doing that so far. I think that's a really good question. Um, I think for institutions, there's got to be significant advantage above and beyond just allowing clinicians to communicate. And I think that's where services that offer the data protection piece that allow data to be transferred into medical records, um, that allow research and learning and development to take place on the back of these conversations taking place. There's going to be significant advantages for anybody um, at sort of a management level, because for the first time ever, they'll have the transparency on patient discussions, which is just not taking place at the minute. I mean, if you can imagine WhatsApp, all their data is held in California and a huge server there, and it's, it's almost impossible to get that information back. So for the first time ever, they'll be able to actually see the conversations taking place. They'll be able to understand a patient's journey through, whether it's just the hospital or out into um, the community care facilities as well. So it's going to start offering considerable value to the institutions, but it's going to require a behaviour change. You know, this is something that um, is going to be a, a, a slight difference to just using a WhatsApp and, and being a really quick, easy message. There'll probably be more information required initially to get things set up. But I think on the back of that, the advantages will play out not only in patient care, but actually in the way we can manage institutions because you're going to understand the patient flow much more clearly. You know, if we think about mobile phones, it's all in real time and that will be the first time they'll be able to analyse this data. All that's left of this episode is to say thank you to Rosanna for joining us. Thank you, Jessica, for uh, so ably hosting. Um, and thank you to everyone for listening. This has been the Health Tech Vision podcast where we analyse the best health tech stories of the week so you don't have to. You can find all of the stories we've discussed today and many more, as well as some of the best jobs, events and podcasts in health tech at healthtechpigeon.com. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.